0: Well, this morning, um, I uh, have the privilege and honor of introducing to you my friend, uh, Dr. Evan Burns. He's got his PhD from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and uh, did his PhD in theology and in church history looking at the life of Adoniram Judson. He's written really the definitive biography of him. I'll talk about that at the end that I would highly recommend that you read. You can read this with your family. It would be a phenomenal way to just... in in uh, gender worship in your, in your uh, uh, family devotions and in your reading together. Um, I, I've asked him to tell you a little bit about what he does. Uh, describing uh, Dr. Burns is almost like describing a Swiss Army knife. There are so many dimensions of his life and what he does Uh, He's a missionary to Thailand, but also does some work in Alaska, and is there part of the year, and in Thailand part of the year, and in teaching at seminary, I I don't know how many hats. I'd like to see your resume at some point, Evan, that would be an interesting thing to to check out. Um, And he was going to be in town, he's talking to us about his, our missions committee, about what he does, and we've asked him to kind of give a presentation to us, but while he was here, I asked him if he would do his presentation, or a presentation, on Judson. Judson is, is a man uh, with whom I became familiar with in seminary um, through actually studying William Carey's life and it intersected with him and was fascinated by him. The trials and what he did to, to accomplish uh, what he did in, in Burma is, is uh, well, you're going to hear about it in a moment. Uh, so when we had uh, access to him, I said, will you please take our Sunday school hour and, and talk about um, Dr. Judson. So, can we give a Mission Road welcome to Dr. Evan Burns?
1: Well, I'm really glad to be here today. Um, before I forget, I, I brought a bunch of prayer pictures if you wanted to see my family. I have a huge stack here, so if afterwards you want some, just come up and introduce yourself, and uh, you can grab one of those. So, by way of introduction, um, I am the director of Last Frontier Global. It's a ministry that has a multiple different um, focuses. We have work in Alaska, and then we have work in Asia, and some other stuff in Latin America and uh, Uganda and parts of Africa as well. Uh, the It's, it's funny, um, Pastor Rick said, I, he described me as a Swiss Army knife, and I, another pastor said the same thing in an introduction one time. And what I like to say is, Uh, Yeah, it may on the outside look like my family and I in the ministry have multiple emphases, many different things we do, but really we like to think of it as more of a lockback knife. We have one edge and we do one thing and we want to be known, whether we're in Alaska or in Thailand or in China, as um, we bring the Bible. We bring the book to people because at the end of the day, the Bible is the best missionary. And if you can leave the Bible in their bloodline you can leave a, a disciple maker that never has to leave. It will always be there. And so um, the the emphasis on the book, and that's what I love about Judson, was he was a man of the book, he was a man of the word, and he longed to leave the Bible in the DNA of the people of Burma. Um, and so Judson, if, if you know anything about him or have ever heard of him, he is the Classic first American missionary to Burma. Um, He really pioneered foreign missions from the United States. He was born in an era where uh, he was downstream of two generations of Jonathan Edwards, and Jonathan Edwards set up this system of pastoral training called the School of the Prophets, and he would basically bring in pastors in training to job shadow under him in his home. And Judson's father, Adoniram Sr., was a uh, disciple of one of Jonathan Edwards' disciples. So, Jonathan Edwards' theology, his his perspective on ministry, his perspective on missions, bled down into the Judson household. But Judson Jr., the, the man we're talking about today, he was not a believer growing up, even though he grew up in a very pietistic, um, theologically rich household. He, he grew up knowing all the right answers, doing all the right things, but once he got to college, uh, he flirted with the ideas of what they called um, French infidelity, which was essentially deism. It was the, the belief that God created the world. He set things into motion just like you would wind up a clock and just kind of let it run and has no intimate, um, direct relationship to the people or the uh, happenings in the world today. So it was a God without providence, essentially. And so Judson fell into this deistic worldview, and uh, he graduated top of his class. He was, he was known as um, a Latin genius. He was a linguistic scholar. He was a mathematician. Um, he, he was brilliant beyond his years and so smart that he could run circles around his dad uh, philosophically, and so Judson wanted to go to New York and write for the theater. He wanted to go into politics. He wanted to be a very great man, and um, his dad raised him up, kept saying, you will be a very great man. So Judson had high, youthful ambitions to do great things for himself, for his name, and God got a hold of his heart after college. He was. He was on a journey out west and so he's from massachusetts out west as western massachusetts um, into what they would consider um, hostile territory because of uh, there was not much civilization out there there was there was theft there was um, still some indian tribes out there that they had to be aware of and uh, judson was out on a journey and ended up staying in an inn one night because the, the rain and the weather was so bad, and in the inn there was only one bed left, and it was separated by a partition or, or just kind of a, a blanket hanging down, and on the other side of the partition was a man who was dying. He was in his last hours, and the innkeeper said, well, that's the, our only bed, and Judson said, well, I'll have to take it. And Providentially, the man who was dying on the other side of the partition was Judson's best friend from university who is the deist that converted Judson to this deistic worldview, this, this anti-Christian, godless, essentially, worldview. And Judson didn't know that his best friend, Jacob Eames, was on the other side of the partition, and he heard him thriving and... Or, Screaming and crying and railing all night long and coughing and early in the morning, this man dies. Judson gets up to go on his journey, and um, he asks the innkeeper. Says. Uh, so it sounds like he died early in the morning. The innkeeper said, yeah, I'm trying to get a hold of his family because um, I, be, I need to let them know. And, his, and Judson says, well, do you know who he was? And he said, yeah, he was a young man from Brown University. His name was Jacob Eames. And Judson was petrified because this was the man who had converted him to deism. And God was on his case. God was chasing him down. And Judson sat there for approximately three hours just thinking over and over of the the um, certitude and the, the eternality of death because he kept saying in his mind, if Jacob Eames is right and he's the deist, then death doesn't matter. This is really meaningless. But the, the process of dying was so grave and it was so fearful and it was so captivating. Judson was, he was chilled to the core that death is so final and it is so um, awful that he believed for the first time that may be his father's God, this God of the Bible is the true God. And it's, he is not a deistic God. He is a providential God who has he has meticulous workings in human history that humans have to reckon with someday on a day of judgment. And so Judson was on his way to visit his um, uncle, uh, who was a pastor, and then coming back, he, he basically repented to his father, got involved in their congregational church, and they admitted him to seminary on the condition, even though he wasn't a believer yet, on the condition that um, he would sit under some of the best teaching, conservative Bible teaching in the area, and uh, that he would not seek to convert people to deism, but he would just be teachable. Within a semester, God led Judson to faith. He was born again, and he was... Walking, and he used to like to prayer walk a lot. That's a lot of people. That's the way they used to do their prayer times: as they'd take walks outside. He was prayer walking behind the seminary one December evening, and Mark 16:15 flashed into his mind. Mark 16:15 says, "Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature." And Judson said, "I was I endeavored to obey that word at all hazards to myself, no matter what." And Judson took Christ's final command as his commissioning, as his, his um, mandate for his life. And you have to understand that he had no precedent upon which to compare himself, no person he wanted to imitate. This was a, a brand new, a pioneering idea to think of taking the gospel from the states, the colonies, what were once colonies, back overseas somewhere to an unreached area, not having maps and you know, Google Earth, short-term trips, PowerPoints, videos, not having any exposure to anything like that, just a theology that drove him, that pro- propelled him to persist in this call. Throughout his life, he, he kept coming back to that verse, the Great Commission, as the driving force in what he did. And we'll see in, in just a few minutes some quotes from Judson as to how he appealed to the final words of Christ as the most significant motivating factor in his life. Um, So Judson, let's just brief overview. He goes to to India, job shadows under William Carey for a season as they're waiting to get to Burma. Um, I'm skipping over a lot of details of his life. He marries Ann Judson who he met in uh, Massachusetts. Ann was the daughter of the pastor who commissioned them. to, to Burma, or, well, to India before they went to Burma. They, they lose a child on the way to Burma. Um, they, they land in Burma, which is obviously, we, we all know is modern-day Myanmar, by the way, but um, that's what they called it back then was Burma, and even people today who are refugees from Myanmar, they still call it Burma. If, they're not, if you're not pro-Myanmar government, you call it Burma. Um, so all my students are Burmese students because... They're fleeing Myanmar, so out of respect for them, we still call it Burma. Um, they landed in Burma, and um, it was, it, it, If I'm actually going back there in, in December to teach a class. Uh, it's a land that's just, it, it looks like a combination of India and China. If you could smash two cultures together, um, that's what it would look like. Uh, it's. It's. Um, it has the biggest Buddhist pagoda in the world. It's just the it's covered in gold. You can see it from miles away. It is a strongly Buddhist country. And Judson Lands, having never studied Buddhism before, having never had any access to the to the Burmese language, and he jumps straight into the language. And just as by way of commentary on his linguistic skills, Judson leaves. Boston or Salem, Massachusetts. As a Congregationalist, which, if you know anything about Congregationalists, they're not Baptists; they're Pado Baptists. He studies the Greek and Hebrew, making his own English translation on the boat on the way to to uh, India. Becomes a Baptist, and and you have to understand this about history: the Baptist history is to be a Baptist in that time period was a major demotion in the proverbial ladder of Christian uh, uh, Christian culture. To be a congregationalist was to be part of the up, upper class of the post-colonial states. So Baptists were looked down upon, they were viewed as know-nothing pietists, and he his wife got in his face and she said, no, we're not going to become Baptist, because you do realize we're going to lose all our support. We're going to lose our friends and maybe even some of our family members because this is a significant step down from the status we would have as a Congregationalist. And Judson said, no, we must obey the Word even if it costs us everything. And then his wife, who is also a, a tremendous linguist, she, went or, she came around after looking at the Greek and the Hebrew and the history of Baptist um, uh, theology, and she herself became convicted and she wrote to her parents and said, we will obey the word even if it costs us our relationships and our, and our support. So they became Baptists on the way. Judson, they were baptized in, in Believer's Baptism in India by Carey and Carey's associates. Um, Carey heard Judson preach on baptism and said, this is the best baptism sermon I've ever heard. Um, and it still is today. If anybody's ever struggling with the theology of baptism, if you could read Judson's sermon, it's actually quite convincing. It's a very good um, treatment of that that perspective, um, they get on a boat to Burma after being in India for a while, um, and they land in Burma, and Judson jumps into the translation work. And just to give you a picture of how, uh, how gifted, how talented he was, even today, Judson's translation, the, the Judson Bible, is probably the most esteemed work of Burmese literature in the Burmese language by Buddhists, secularists alike. They will say what Judson did, even as a non-native Burmese speaker, was um, what he did for the Burmese language is essentially what Luther did for the German language, what Tyndale did for the English language. It's it's fascinating how much the Burmese Bible has affected Burmese culture, even though they're still Buddhist. Um, They really respect him. And just by way of biographical reflection, um, so, when people know that I am in Burma or I'm teaching Burmese pastors, because ancestor veneration is still a big deal even for Christians, they give me tremendous, uh, well, they, essentially they roll out the red carpet, so to speak, and they they treat me as a disciple of Judson because I've, I written, I've written a definitive book on Adnaram Judson, so in their mind, I am venerating their spiritual ancestor, which is a huge compliment to them. It's a huge service to the Burmese church. So um, they will often ask me, well, tell us, teach us about Judson's theology. Teach us about his Bible study methods or, you know, hermeneutics or something. So I'm given quite a big microphone anytime I'm in Burma. Um, Over the span of his life, just quick flyby, he's tortured. He's he's, um, treated as a British spy because Britain and Burma were at war. And so, they think he's a spy, and he's tortured for about, it was about 21 months. He loses his best friend, his wife, Anne, loses his daughter. Um, a few months after that, he goes into a severe depression where he contemplates suicide. He wonders if God has abandoned him. Yet, in spite of it all, he is still translating the Bible. He's still doing street preaching. He's still faithful, but the feeling, the, that sense of God's nearness has gone. It's, com- it's completely gone. He's, he, he, he thinks he's done something to deserve this abandonment, this punishment, but yet he still puts his trust in God that even he would say, he quotes Job, he says, though he slay me, still I will hope in him. Judson still perseveres in spite of it all. And what happens is his father dies and Judson goes into an even deeper depression. He hears of his father's death, but then his brother, El Nathan dies, but... Judson, before he left for Burma, he's pleading with um, El Nathan to come to Christ. He was not a believer. And that that was the last conversation Judson had with his brother. But his brother then becomes a believer later in life, dies. And the news of El Nathan's death in Jesus, that now he's in heaven, is what God used to transport him, so to speak, from this deep, dark cloud of melancholy to back to clear thinking back to joy in the Lord, and God preserved him through it. And correspondingly, after these years of of laboring and of depression and struggle, losing a wife, losing a daughter, losing another son, losing a son, well, three kids and a wife, at this point, he he, uh, marries a a missionary woman who's a widow. Her husband has just died. And um, about this time, he's... The part of the New Testament is done, some of the tracks are done, and people are coming from all over. They're, they're literally banging on His door, and He says, we only give a Bible or we give a track to those who ask. It's not that they're out on the street corner passing these out. People are literally banging His door down, asking for a Bible. And he says they, they come from the borders of Siam, which is Thailand. Um, they come from Cafe, which is kind of Bangladesh area. They come from China, asking, "Sir, give us a writing. We we hear that you have a writing that tells us how to escape the eternal hell. We hear that you have a writing that tells us about the eternal God. Would you? Are you the Jesus Christ man? Are you the man of Jesus Christ, sir? Pray, give us a writing. And Judson is pumping out Bibles on the printing press as fast as possible. And God's Spirit is poured out in a an awakening, a revival sort of way, and people are coming to Christ. And this is just after all of the, the the season of depression and dying and disappointments that he goes through. But his life is not a life marked of drama and then decisive victory. It's, it's actually, there's patterns of that throughout his life because then he goes on to have more difficulty, more dying, more dis- disappointments, more more things, I mean, he, he suffers a fire, loses all his manuscripts, and he has to start over. He, um, there's so many other disappointments along the way, but sprinkled in between all of the struggles and all the hardships and all the disappointments is a faithful God that he attests to, that he depends upon. And so I want to show you from the life of Judson what makes his spirituality, what makes his piety, his his way of loving Jesus so imitable, so so exemplary for us, so yet so otherworldly, so different than what we're used to. But he truly is a man who who shows us the worthiness of Jesus. And and if he were here today and he would stand up, he he had come back uh, because his ailing second wife was, she was dying and they were coming back to New England to get her well. She died on the way, but he still came back to New England for the first time after 30 years of being on the field. And he came to a hero's welcome and people wanted to put him up in front and to talk about, they said, would you tell us stories of the Antipodes or the your, your adventures in the the boonies, basically. You're out in the jungles. Tell us, tell us about the tigers. Tell us about the snakes. Tell us about the, 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 when you went and pled before the Burmese king for religious toleration. And Judson said, you know, that's all interesting and fine and good. But he said, my commission is to preach Christ, and why would I do anything different here? I'm here to tell you about Jesus and this, the compelling love of Christ that drives us to lay down our lives for other people. So, why would I want to talk about anything else? Let my name perish into oblivion, he would say. Let my name be forgotten, but let Jesus be remembered. And so if Judson were here, he would not be speaking biographically he would, or autobiographically. He would, be, he would be speaking about what Christ has done historically, um, intimately, truly in his life. And um, one unique thing about studying him is he's not a typical... Uh, theologian, like say Spurgeon or Edwards. So, if you wanted to get to the um, mind of Spurgeon, you would go to the Spurgeon Library and you would read exhaustively everything he preached on, everything he wrote, um, all his manuscripts, and you would come up with a systematic compendium, a systematic work of um, his theology. And that's what you would do with a theologian or a pastor, but with a missionary, a lot of times they don't have. All these dogmas and all these treatises and all these lectures, they have, like Judson, he had a Bible that he translated. So, how do you understand the man if he doesn't have volumes of sermons in English to study? Well, you read his journals, you read his diaries, you read his letters to people, how he counseled people. So, if you wanted to study a person like Spurgeon or Edwards, it'd be like sitting in their classroom well, this is, this is what he teaches on eschatology. This is what he teaches on ecclesiology. But if you want to study a person like Judson, it's not like sitting in a classroom where he's lecturing. It's like sitting across from him in a coffee shop or a tea house in Burma and hearing him disciple you, hearing him relate to you, and then draw connections between how he relates to the Lord and how he does his quiet times or devotions or, or what are those things about Jesus that are so admirable, that are so um, enjoyable throughout the day? What does your prayer time look like? These are, these are the types of discipleship lessons you would derive from the letters of Judson. So I transcribed all his letters. I've, I found things that nobody knew even existed in Burma and tran- translated those. And so um, I felt like I was more discipled by the man, by his heart, rather than instructed by his mind primarily. Uh, so Judson is, um, we can go ahead and go to the first slide. Some of these, the, by the way, I only have three or four of those left. Um, we can get more, but that's, that's the book. Uh, Rick, Pastor Rick has a few of those. Um, go ahead and go to the next one. Yeah, you know, everywhere I speak has a different size of slides. so some of these we're just going to have to skip over. I can't see very well at the, at the moment. Um, I, sometimes my vision kind of comes and goes, and... So, some of that's really blurry for me. Um, Augustine says, uh, seek his face always is from Psalm, is it 105.4? Yeah. Seek his face always is the key to Christian spirituality, according to Augustine. Um, He says, let us then seek as those who are going to find and find as those who are going to go on seeking. So, Augustine had a very intensive, progressive view of spirituality. It was an ongoing pursuit of Jesus. And Judson latches on to that pursuit of Christ and applies it to his own life. And I would argue that what I'm promoting here by looking at the life of Judson is essentially what Hebrews 11 promotes, is imitate those and their faith who have gone before us. Or uh, Hebrews 13, um, consider, meditate on, your leaders, comma, those who spoke the word of God to you. So the leaders, the Christian leaders that we are to consider, that we are to ruminate on, that we are to contemplate, are those who are marked by the proclamation of the word. To the degree that you open your mouth and you lead from the word of God to the same degree you lead spiritually. So when I look at the life of Judson, I'm asking, I have an agenda. I'm asking a question, how does this man handle the Word of God? How does the Bible dominate the spirituality of this man? And so I want to know what is in his DNA and what drives him because every biography asks one question. They ask, they ask um, not just the what question of what happened in his life, but they ask, they ask why. Why did he persevere? Why did he endure so much death and disappointments and struggles and um, depression? Why did he do it? But they never answer it truly. They never truly answer it. They, they It's kind of the hook. They catch, they, they bring you in, and it's the same story. If you read any biography, they all just tell the same story. There's no new stuff out there, biographically speaking, about Judson. They're just telling the same drama, and it's an amazing story. There are people who have, they've made movies out of it. There's, there's um, cartoon, there's documentaries. That's always being pumped out because his story is... So there's, there's romance, there's action, there's adventure, there's drama, there's mystery. There, it's a thriller. I mean, it reads like a novel. And if you want a good bio, just tangential, if you want a good um, biography, To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. He was, Courtney Anderson in the 1950s was a uh, screenwriter for Hollywood. So he writes like a novel. It just goes and moves along. Um, some people I know that I st- I've studied under my former PhD supervisor Michael Haken or Nathan Finn or Mark Dever. They all say this is their favorite Christian biography because of how historically accurate it is, but also how it reads so much like a novel. It is is—it is entertaining. To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. They all ask that question, why did he endure so much? But they don't answer it in a satisfying way. They, um, they get close, but they never figured out what made him so perseverant. And I would argue, um, go ahead, you can go ahead and go to the, these, oh, the, by the way, these are just questions I ask as coming to Judson. In what ways did the Bible dominate his missionary spirituality? How did Judson's self denying submission of God's providence support, buttress his spiritual life? To what extent did the promises of heaven pervade his piety? Um, and what were the roles of his affection for Christ and consecration to the Great Commission, what were the roles of that in his spirituality? Um, by the way, if, if you want these slides, I'd be happy to email them to you. Um, if you're going to use them, at least give me some credit for them. <laughs> but, you know, as they say in China, it's your right to copy. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, go to the next one. Um, okay, we'll, we'll skip some of this. This is just, it'll slow us down. Go ahead and this is just stuff I've gone over, life in context, go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, next one. Okay. This is the argument. This is what I'm trying to demonstrate by looking at his, his letters, his journals, and his tracts, and some of his other things. The center, the unifying center of the spirituality, the piety of Abraham Judson was a heavenly-minded, self-denying submission to the sovereign will of God. Okay. Motivated by, so if you're doing a sentence diagram, this is the motivational section, motivated by an affectionate desire to please Christ. That's the most important part of that whole sentence. He was motivated by a passionate, burning desire to please Jesus above all else. And how did that happen? Judson would argue you want to please Jesus? Well, and I'll show you from a quote later on. He would say, if you want to please Christ, obey His commands. How else to please Him than to do what He's asked? And what is the apex, what is the pinnacle of all His commands? He said, well, it's going to have to be His final command because when somebody is on their deathbed, so to speak, or they're leaving and they'll never see you again, they give parting words, the most important words they're going to leave to you. So keep the Great Commission doesn't mean you have to be a missionary, and I'll demonstrate that from some of his writings later. You don't have to be a missionary to to keep the Great Commission, but you need to be missions minded and missions driven out of love for Jesus and compassion for the nations. You will please Christ when the greatest burden on his heart becomes your burden. Um, So go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, We're going to talk about his Bible-centered spirituality. We'll go ahead and go to the next one. Um, these are some of his favorite verses he uses over and over. So, you know, when, when you're teaching a Bible class, um, one, one thing you might point out to your students if you are discipling a young believer is pay attention to proportionality in Scripture. What I mean by that is this. Um, if, if in the Bible there might be one or two verses on, say, a particular spiritual gift, well, Is it wise, is it prudent to develop a whole denomination, a whole 501c3 parachurch organization based upon one or two verses in the Bible when there's a whole book dedicated to the virtue of wisdom and the fear of the Lord? The proportionality of Scripture far outweighs an emphasis upon virtue and character and wisdom and wise living over against um, competence and skill set and um, talents and giftings. So pay attention to proportionality because a lot of times when an author wants to emphasize something, whether it's the capital A author in the Bible or just human authors in general, they will, the burden of the author is often discovered when you pay attention to the proportion of something that he emphasizes. So pay attention to the proportionality of Judson's piety by. Considering how often certain verses pop up in his reflections throughout his life, so that's what I did: is I extracted the greatest proportion proportionately emphasized verses of his life, and these are some of them. Mark 16:15 by far dominates his reflections; is his mandate verse, and to the end of his life, he was seeking to obey Mark 16:15. And then, and then there's others. I'm not going to go through all these, but a lot of them have to do with loving Christ, abiding in His love, and then loving others. Um, as as you would yourself, so um, he was he was driven by the Great Commission, but he was his life was um, it was fragrant with the Great Commandment. If you might want to do, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love others as yourself. So that would be how you might consider the Great Commission dominated his life, but the the hard edges of the of robust commitment to the obedience of the Great Commission were softened by. A love for people and a love for God, and and um, he would often pray at night. This is just a side note. His kids wrote in their journals they could hear him pacing back and forth because he'd prayer walk in the middle of the night. And they'd say, Well, we knew Papa was praying because we could hear the boards sque- sque- uh, creaking in the middle of the night. And he was, he was known as a very happy man, he had a very good relationship with his three different wives and um, all his children, and um, they really respected him. He was very playful. He wasn't that um, aloof, remote, stodgy Bible translator that might be communicated inadvertently in some of his biographies. He actually, if you read people's descriptions of him who worked with him and even his children, he was a very joyful person, but he was just very focused. And so when it was work time, he was working hard, but when work time was over, he was playing hard. Um, So... Anyway, let's go to the next, next slide. Here's just some Bible-centered, that's what bibliocentric means, Bible-centered quotes that one of the best ways to understand somebody is to know them by their words, not just to read about them by what other people interpret to be their words. That's one of the hardest things about Christian biography is a lot of times you read the author's interpretation of this person. But if you have the ability to read the author yourself, primary sources, sometimes you will you'll find gold you'll find things that would not have been demonstrated in the biography itself so he's he's debating right now with a buddhist monk and the buddhist monk has come to a point where he can at least acknowledge that jesus died on the cross for sins which is if you know anything about buddhism that's a huge step in a good direction buddhism that is a that is a intellectual, rational hurdle that is very difficult, very difficult to overcome. But, so this Buddhist monk has gotten to this point where he at least acknowledges that Jesus died for sins, but um, Judson is not satisfied with his intellectual assent of the crucifixion. He says this, a true disciple inquires not whether a fact is agreeable to his own reason, but whether it is in the book. His pride has yielded to divine testimony. Teacher, your pride is still unbroken. Break down your pride and yield to the word of God. So Judson, before he even baptized people, he, one, one, of the, one of the things that he wanted to make sure before he could baptize them into believer's baptism was, are they willing to suffer persecution for Christ's sake? Which is an amazing um, testimony of the of what the Holy Spirit has done in somebody's life is are they willing to be persecuted, but the deciding factor for Judson as to whether or not somebody should undergo believer's baptism was do they submit to the full counsel of the written word of God. That was on every line, every page. Was there any hang-ups? Were there any things that they were still not completely? You know, I don't really agree with this. The, I, I, I don't think this is really applicable to me. Judson would just—he would—he would quiz them. He would blitz them with with um, interrogation, so to speak, saying, "Okay, what about this point? What about this? What about this?" He would go through all their Buddhist doctrines, and he would say, "I'm not interested in enthusiasm. I'm not interested in some sort of emotional high. Like, okay, you be, you just became a believer. You said you'll you'll be willing to be persecuted." He was not satisfied with with um, In an emotional commitment, he wanted to see that over the long haul, they demonstrated a humble, reverent submission to the Word of God. And so even arguing with this man, it was the book, it was the Bible that was the deciding factor, the litmus test of whether or not somebody was truly born again. Okay, we can go to the next slide. Um, Okay, so this one. I realize you probably can't see all the words because it's, it's, I, I, it's a lot of words up there. This was a young man named Justice Vinton, or Eustace Vinton. He was a um, new missionary. He had come, didn't speak Burmese at all yet, um, so, obviously, he only speaks English. And one, one thing to remember about Judson, and I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, he was offered the most prestigious pulpit in New England before he went to Burma. Um, his dad always wanted him to be a famous pastor. Um, and some others, the, some other uh, professors in, at Andover Seminary knew that Judson had this dominant oratory gift. He was, um, they thought he would be the new, the next Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he... Or the next Whitfield, I suppose, because Whitfield had a more dominant oratory gift than Edwards did. But he was a very famous speaker in his own right in college and in seminary, very persuasive. And Judson always wanted to be a preacher. He had that was, if you doing like a gift mix survey, that would be his dominant gift is preaching. So why would he be a translator? Why would he give himself to Bible translation? if he burned inside to preach the word every Sunday. And it was because he was so latched onto, he was so committed to the Bible that he said, well, how can we preach the Bible? How can they preach the Bible in these foreign lands if we don't have a Bible at all? So what motivated him in his translation efforts was this burning desire to preach the word. And so Justice Vinton hears him preaching in Burmese, so he doesn't understand a single word he's saying, but he says this, True, Judson preached in Burman, Burmese, but though I did not know the meaning of a single sentence he uttered, still my attention was never more closely riveted on any sermon I ever heard. Were I to fix upon any one characteristics of the preacher which perhaps more than any other rendered his discourse interesting and impressive, I should say it was the earnestness of manner it was impossible for anyone to escape the conviction that his whole soul was in the work. Every tone, every look, every sentence spoke out in the most empathetic language to tell us that the man was seriously in earnest and himself believed the truths that he uttered. So when he stood up, heaven and hell were on the line and everybody knew it, even if they didn't understand the word he was speaking because the Bible so grabbed and, and um, pervaded his mind. And so people were captivated by the earnest, the unction that Judson spoke with. All right, we can go to the next slide. Um, okay, so Judson was, his, his piety was known as Bible-centered and then as submissive to the will of God, which I titled ascetic spirituality. It's very hard to find an ad- adjective to describe this kind of piety, so that's that's what I landed on. If you can think of a better word, I'm open to ideas. But it's already in the book, so I can't change it. Um, but for my own sake, if you can think of a better adjective, tell me. Okay, well, let's go to the next slide. Um, some ascetic spirituality quotes that demonstrate his his acquiescence, his submission to the word of, or to the sovereign will of God. Um, this is this is probably one of the most famous things he's known for. Is his um, his plea to his fiance's father for her hand in marriage. Now remember, his fiance's father is the one, the pastor who helped commission them, so he's all in in missions anyways. But Judson writes this. He says, I have now to ask you whether you consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death, can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls and for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Very uncommon type of letter. <laughs> so, guys, don't don't even bother comparing. Nobody expects it. But it just demonstrates how how earnest he was at a young age and this sense of earnestness continued all his life. Um, we can go, to, go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, Judson was known for writing poetry whenever he was in deep reflection, a lot of times when he was struggling a lot, or when he was very full of joy, the pain or the pleasure that he experienced in God's presence, he often processed the pain or the joy Through poetry. And one of his poems he wrote this sovereign love appoints the measure and number of our pains and is pleased when we take pleasure in the trials he ordains. Um, And he he had a very low view of himself, very not not in a self-depreciating manner, I don't mean that, but he had such a high view of God and God's purposes that he would he wouldn't speak about using the proverbial American, finding God's will for his life. Well, there's some categorical errors there because it's not your life in general anyways. So it's, it's an impossible question to find God's will for your life. The, the point is, is knowing God's will, period. And so Judson never viewed himself as his own. He was, his life was on loan to him by God and he was living a life spent for God, spent by God. And so he says, when will Christians learn that their puny, polluted offerings of works are not necessary to God? He permits them to work as a favor in order to do them good, personally, because he loves them and desires to honor them, not because he needs them. Judson never viewed himself as indispensable. Um he had a responsibility, a charge to keep, but he never viewed himself as well, I only, I am left. If I don't do this, who, who will? Well, if God wants to do it with somebody else, he can and he might and he will. Um, so he never saw, he never thought too highly of himself. I'm going to go to the next slide. Um, he says elsewhere, true though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, not because I have wrought myself into an unwarranted Belief that he'll carry me over smooth waters. He may cast us in a burning, fiery furnace or precipitate us to the lowest depths of the sea, but his care, his tenderness, his love are still the same. Um, Judson would say, just like in Hebrews 11, where some by faith triumph, they shut the mouths of lions, they escape the edge of the sword, they put foreign armies to flight. Some women receive back their dead um, in resurrection. And then it says in verse 35, in the middle of the sentence, it says, and others... Others were tortured, refusing to accept their release, that they might rise again to a better life, going about destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering about in caves and deserts and holes in the ground, sawn in two, wearing sheepskins, men of whom the world was not worthy. So Judson would say, though he handles me with tenderness, or hands me over to torture, still, Jesus is better. The Lord is my shepherd, and if he leads me beside still waters or hands me to the slaughter, Jesus is better. And Judson would by faith say we receive the promises that are yet to come. Um, Hebrews eleven fifteen says they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And then it says, and God is not ashamed to be called their God. And the evidence of faith in Hebrews eleven fifteen 15 is in that word desire. It's seen in the affections, the longings for God, for heaven. And so we're going to see now in these next um, couple slides, go ahead and skip to the next slide. Uh, just want to point out one thing here. He had a list of resolutions, just like Jonathan Edwards had resolutions, rules for life, Virtues to live by, essentially. The last one was the one that dominated his life. It's it's resolved to make the desire to please Christ the great, the grand motive of all my actions. So he longed to please Christ above everything else. That was the filter through which he interpreted all his other decisions was, does this please Jesus? Okay, we can go to the next slide. Heavenly-minded spirituality, his, his um, eminent biographer, Francis Whalen, who wrote the two-volume biography on Judson, said, it's impossible to understand his life and his piety apart from a pervasive heavenly-mindedness. And so, heavenly-mindedness is truly, um, on the surface, what you see in Judson's life, was an eternal perspective, but deep down in the roots of his life was a desire to please Jesus. We'll look at a few of his heavenly-minded quotes. Um, Yeah, I guess I'll read this. It's a long one, but this this is helpful. This is worth commenting on. He says, nor does Jesus intend a happiness eternally stationary, meaning just in one place, plateauing. It will be eternally increasing, he says. As their capacities will be eternally enlarging, the quantity of happiness they will enjoy will be eternally increasing, and not merely eternally increasing to the same ratio, but eternally increasing in an eternally accelerated ratio, meaning, okay, I'll just explain this. In heaven, nobody's joy plateaus or levels out. You get there, and your enjoyment in heaven gets better and better and better And not just better and better and better, but faster and faster, it gets better and better. So that after thousands of years of an ever-increasing joy in heaven at an ever-increasing speed, your joy far outweighs all of the joys of earth if it was all put together. And essentially, if, if there are days in heaven, if there are nights and days, just follow the analogy, at the end of the day in heaven, You put your head on your pillow and you'll say, it's the best day I've ever had, but tomorrow will be even better. The best is always yet to come for the believer. And this is one of the things that motivated Judson was this, the temporary pains and weights of this life aren't even worth comparing. I mean, they're not even worth talking about if you think about the joys of heaven, just meditating on heavenly increasing joy, it helps us tolerate, helps us persevere through all the junk we got to go through in this life. I think, just this is just Evan's commentary, I think the doctrine of hope is one of the most underestimated doctrines in the Bible. Hope, we talk about faith and love a lot, but we don't talk about hope very much, hope has the power to help us do what is worldly impossible, to rejoice in our tribulations. In hope of the glory of God. That's what he's talking about, is this eternal ability to take in the fullness of the infinite. More and more and more in hope of the glory of God so that when you go through stuff in this life, you can rejoice in hope. Um, Judson was a very hope-filled person. Um, Go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, he wrote this to Anne when they were dating. A life once spent is irrevocable. It will remain to be contemplated through eternity. If it be marred with sins, the marks will be indelible. It has been a useless life. If it has been a useless life, it can never be improved. Such it will stand forever and ever. When it is once passed, it is gone forever. All the marks which we put upon it will exhibit forever. It will never become less true that such a day was spent in such a manner. Each day will not only be witness of our conduct, but will affect our everlasting destiny No day will lose its share of influence in determining where shall be our seat in heaven. How shall we then wish to see each day marked with usefulness? It will then be too late to mend its appearance. It is too late to mend the days that are past. The future is in our power. Let us then each morning resolve to send the day into eternity in such a garb as we shall wish it to wear forever and at night let us reflect that one more day is irrevocably gone and indelibly marked. Uh, you only can write this way if, as Judson said, you have an uncertainty about life. Because if you know you might wake up with yellow fever tomorrow and you might be gone in 24 hours, you live as though eternity is banging on your door every night because you just saw your George Boardman, your coworker. Perish in a 24-hour fever, and your child you just buried last week because he got bit by a snake or whatever. So when you live like death is nearby, you you interpret all of life through very different lenses. But if you live as though well, everybody lives at least to 70 or 80, and I'm you know I've got a plan ahead. And I, I don't, don't ever think about death because we've, we've domesticated and we've sanitized death so much in our culture. Um, we, we think differently. So sometimes the exercise of learning from people who have gone before us helps us to recalibrate our perspectives. And it um, doesn't mean that they're better than us. doesn't mean that we're less than them. We're just different. We live in a different age, but we can still learn from them. And so that's the blessing of going back to, to learn from the dead, the dead guys, you know. Okay, let's go to the next one. Um, uh, Okay, let's go ahead and skip this one it's similar Um, he wrote at the end of his dictionary in pencil right before he died he finished the dictionary before it was published he wrote this in pencil, like I said he um, would write poems in great joy or great sorrow, he says in joy or sorrow, health or pain our course be onward still we sow on Burma's barren plain and we reap on Zion's hill and I wonder how many of you feel like Your life is just one big barren plain. But you sow, and you sow, and you sow. But just remember, the reaping is yet to come, and that will be on Zion's hill. So um, onward, be onward, and persevere. Let's go to the next one. Um, Last few quotes about pleasing Christ. Uh, Let's go ahead and skip this. We'll skip this. I'm just going to summarize that statement. There was a young man who heard him preach the last few years of his life in Washington, D.C. when he was raising support and recruiting workers. And this young man said, um, you know, Judson could have talked about anything, but all he ever wanted to talk about was pleasing Jesus. He said, it made such a big impression on my life that a young boy that I was, I wanted to imitate him and live my life to please Jesus above all else. And he became a pastor, and that was actually one of the marks upon his life I studied this young man's life and how Judson's spirituality influenced him all his life, and people even recognized that this man was a very Jesus-centered pastor because of that interaction with Judson, the power of a conversation, the power of a message that you can have on people. Um, Go ahead and go to the next slide. This is important. Judson's recruiting would-be missionaries at Waterville College um, three years before he dies, and he says, if you enter the gospel ministry in this or other lands, let not your object be so much to do your duty, now translate that word for responsibility, uh, do what you're responsible for, um, or even to save souls. Those, these should have a place in your motives, but he says, as to please Jesus, the Lord Jesus, let this be your ruling motive in all you do. Now you ask, how shall we please him? How indeed shall we please him, but to obey his commands? Obey these commands and you will not fail to please him. And then there's that last command, given just before he ascended to the Father, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16, 15, you hear it. It's not yet obeyed as it should be. Fulfill that and you'll please the Savior. We can go to the next slide. Um, Skip this. Those, those quotes basically say one of the best tests of assurance of faith is to what degree are you seeking to please Christ by playing your part in the Great Commission. Um, so he asks himself this, this will be my closing quote, and then I'll say one more comment. The very first quote up there, he's speaking to the Southern Baptist Convention in Richmond, and he's, he asks himself the question everybody's asking, what motivates a missionary to make sacrifices on the mission field? And he said, he, he answered his own question. A supreme desire to please Jesus is the grand motive that should animate Christians in their missionary efforts. David Livingston, different missionary, David Livingston to Africa said, you know, it is no sacrifice. He lost wives and children and health. He's speaking to some students at Cambridge University, and they were thanking him for his sacrifice. And um, Judson was thanked for his sacrifice similarly. David Livingston said, you know, it is no sacrifice, and then he says this, why, when a earthly king summons a soldier to the front lines, why do we say that's an honor? But when the heavenly king summons a person to the front lines in ministry or the mission field, and we call it a sacrifice, it is indeed no sacrifice, it's an honor. And Judson, that's what Livingston said, Judson would say the same thing in his own words. So. Final comment, Judson, in that same sermon, he says, you know, there are a lot of lazy missionaries out there. There's a lot of people who go to the mission field, and they just play European culture. They just do their little American cultural bubble stuff, and they never end up really preaching the gospel. They do lots of okay things, but the Bible is never the center of what they do. And Judson was very irritated with some lazy missionaries, and he said, there are people who wash dishes, cook clean, and are praying for the Great Commission, are praying for missions, and are giving sacrificially to missions, who are doing more for the Great Commission than some of those those disobedient, lazy missionaries. And he said, you can can be obedient to the Great Commission by obeying or imitating Christ in his three offices. His prophetic office, you can go as a preacher, as a missionary. You, You can go. Some people are sent to go. Not everybody. Most people aren't, and that's a good thing. Um... His kingly office is a office of sending, of commissioning, of supporting. Or you can can imitate Christ in his priestly office, in an intercessory role, in a loving, in a a, um, caring, praying role. He said "There, there are women at the wash basin, he said, who are more like Jesus in his great commission efforts, who intercede and pray for missions than there are prophetic missionaries who are on the field, playing European culture, eating their crumpets and drinking their tea. He, he was um, very adamant that you can be a Great commissioned Christian anywhere just by imitating the three offices of Christ. So there's an old, um, there's an old sh- children's chorus, not native to Judson, but this is written in this last century, in the 20th century. It says, the Bible is the written word of God. It tells about the living word of God. On every page, on every line, you'll find the Son of God divine. If you want to learn to know the King of Kings, if you want to learn of all the heavenly things, read the book, learn the book, and let the book teach you. And this is what Judson would say is, the book is all about Jesus. Get the book in the blood and you will have an ongoing missionary, an ongoing disciple maker all your life. And it's all about pleasing your King, Jesus. So, let me pray, and we're, we'll be done. I can be up here. To, we can do some Q&A afterwards, probably informally, you think? Yeah, so we can have a little break before service. I have all these prayer cards, and if you want to receive our um, prayer email updates, we usually send them out quarterly or so, bi-monthly. Um, just come up here, and I'll write down your email, and then we'll make sure you're on our, our prayer list. But thanks so much for your attention, and it was a real uh, privilege and pleasure to be here.